You can be seated. <coughs> it's going to be with you this morning. We are going to look at part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And we're going to dabble in the Beatitudes a little bit as well. It's not a coincidence that we are studying the Sermon on the Mount uh, at RUF Hendricks on Monday nights. Quick uh, update, if I can take that liberty. Uh, I'm really encouraged by the semester uh, that we've had uh, over in Conway. A lot of new faces, which is exciting. Um, so pray for us if you think about it as we head into the end of the semester and the end of the year. Uh, if you would like updates on our ministry... We have an active MailChimp uh, newsletter system, which is email newsletters, and you can get on that list by asking me or shooting me an email at bradfordgreen at ruf.org. So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, it always accomplishes its purposes. Uh, it never goes out and returns to you empty. We pray that that would be true this morning as we look at these words of Jesus, that you would um, imprint them on our hearts, sink them into our hearts, and teach us uh, from these words. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to think for a couple minutes about oxymorons. An oxymoron, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but just so we're on the same page here. An oxymoron is when you take two uh, disparate things and put them together in a way that technically, formally doesn't make any sense. And we do it for a kind of rhetorical effect. So a deafening silence, controlled chaos, short sermons. These are all oxymorons. Uh, we use phrases like these all the time. We make jokes about them, about how you drive on a parkway, but you park on a driveway. Or as I heard the other day, uh, that we cook bacon, but we bake cookies. So uh, Christianity in particular has a lot of oxymorons. In fact, if I stood here and said, if I said, here we are to worship rich beggars, gathered as living sacrifices, experiencing the minor miracle of worship and praying for the peaceful conquest of God's kingdom. For Christians like us, worship is our only choice. There are five oxymorons in there. And that sounds a little weird, but it doesn't sound that weird, uh, I think, because Christianity is full of these things. Or to put it another way, uh, it's full of paradoxes. An oxymoron being a, a type of mini 
paradox. Jesus himself, of course, is like a, a fountain of these things. Some of them small, some of them big conceptual paradoxes. He tells us we have to be weak to be strong. We have to be humbled so we can be lifted up. We have to die so that we can live. All of which is to say that Christianity is paradoxical. It does not work the way the world works. And because of that, Christians are not like everybody else. If there is a a grain to this world, then Christians cut the other way. We tend to think a little differently about emotions like anger and lust, about marriage and sex and authority, about the poor and serving other people, about anxiety and fear, about what a person is and what we are meant to do here, which is worship God and glorify him forever, right, and enjoy him. So all of these things... uh, Uh, Jesus actually addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is where our passage situates itself, right after the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus' most famous sermon, probably the most famous sermon uh, period in the history of the world. And Jesus rolls out these two paradoxes, these two oxymorons, saltless salt and a hidden lamp. Or we might say a, a lamp that is not lamping. Now, a lot of people think that the Sermon on the Mount is a sort of uh, moral manifesto of Jesus. And there is some truth to that, but there's much more going on here. The Sermon on the Mount is really more about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes as a new king. He's bringing uh, a new kingdom with him, a new way of life that is connected to the old Jewish system of law. Uh, Jesus talks about the law right after uh, this passage, but is much more than that. Jesus is bringing something new. And so when you come into a place, a new place or culture or system, you have to learn its ways. How do Jesus' followers begin to understand this? How would you understand it if your life and your culture and your customs were suddenly turned on their head? Some of you have probably experienced that. Uh, And it's scary, and it's disorienting, and and difficult. Uh, But the people that Jesus is talking to have made that jump. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Christians, to citizens of a new kingdom. So what's really happening here, John Stott, I think, put it best, is Jesus is answering what influence Beatitudes people can expect to have. In other words, what possible influence can meek and poor in spirit and peaceful and persecuted Palestinian peasants have on the world? And his answer is a major influence. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I mean, think about that for a second, how radical this is. Jesus, at this point, Jesus is talking to a tiny, a a minuscule kind of sect right now that has absolutely no influence uh, even on their own uh, city. Uh, And so he's saying you're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I think that idea would have a much harder punch, uh, this analogy in in the ancient world. Salt and light being two important but relatively rare things in those days. When I say rare, 
I mean, no one is flipping on light switches for their light, right? No one is uh, shopping at Kroger and getting big tubs of uh, very clean uh, salt for cheap. And so if you had salt that wasn't salting in the ancient world or a lamp that wasn't lamping, then you had two big problems in your household. So we're going to break down what Jesus is saying in three parts here. First, what Jesus assumes. Second, what Jesus promises. And third, what Jesus is getting at. So what does Jesus assume? Well, one good Bible reading rule that I tell my students is this. Whatever the Bible says, the Bible says. But also, whatever the Bible implies, the Bible also says. In other words... um, The things that are implied in the Bible, as long as we interpret it correctly, are just as true as the things that are said in the Bible. So a good question to ask as you read a passage is, what has to be true in order for Scripture to say this? So what is Jesus presupposing here? I think a couple things. First, Christians are different than the world, which we've said. But second, the church and the world are two communities heading in opposite directions. What Jesus is presupposing about the world, what he is implying here, is that the world tends towards chaos. Now, I'm not a a scientist, but as I understand it, uh, entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, science at least sort of echoes this idea I think literature does as well. I remember reading in high school the book, uh, Things Fall Apart. I don't remember what happened in the book or what it was about, but the title certainly rings true, right? Things Fall Apart. And in the physical world, think about how much more difficult it is to make a coffee cup than it is to break a coffee cup. I know this. I've broken many coffee cups in my life. Or think about a house that has been... um, abandoned and how quickly it returns to dust when no one is taking care of it. The same is true, I think, in more internal or moral terms. Uh, I read a book um, a a couple months ago called The Four Feathers, which was at one point pretty famous. It's been made into a movie a few times. And in it, uh, a young British officer resigns his commission kind of right before his brigade uh, ships off to war in the Sudan. And so he claims it is so he can be married, but three of his soldier friends, his best friends, don't believe him. And so they send him a feather, uh, which is uh, signifying cowardice. And when his fiance finds out about it, she actually adds uh, very dramatically a fourth feather. And so he has these four feathers uh, telling him that he is a coward. And so in one night, his decision to resign as a soldier ruins his friendships, his future marriage, uh, his relationship with, a fa- with his father, who is a retired general. So what does he do? He puts the feathers in his pocket. He disappears into the war zone. He lives uh, for years on the streets in Egypt. He becomes something like an, an undercover agent. He risks his life fights against his fear, and eventually, one by one, he gets uh, each of his friends and finally his former fiancée to take back their feathers. The point is, it took one night for him to be labeled a coward. It took many years for him to earn his honor back. 
Maybe you've experienced something like this or you know someone who has, someone who's thrown their life away in sort of a moment of indiscretion. That's how sin works. Uh, That's how temptation and pride and scandal work. Things fall apart. Jesus assumes that. But here's what Jesus promises. It's our second part here. That in a broken world tending towards disorder, Christians cut against the grain and salt and light push back. I mean, think of these two things. Why salt? It's a pretty mundane substance for Jesus to to use as an illustration here. But one of the reasons is that uh, salt is extremely important, um, uh, especially in preservation of meat, for instance. Meat tends to go bad. If you eat it after that, you tend to go bad, right? So uh, nowadays, food companies do the preserving for us so that we don't have to think about it as much. But especially in the ancient world, salt for preservation and salt for taste, which Jesus mentions more explicitly here, was, was priceless. So uh, reading from the description uh, of a book called Salt, A World History, says, A substance so valuable it served as currency. Salt has influenced the establishment of trade routes in cities, provoked and financed wars, and inspired revolutions. Homer called it a divine substance. It's actually uh, important for your body as well. Uh, You need it to live. You need salt in your body. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. In other words, you, Christians, are a preservative in a world that tends to fall apart. You, Christians, make the world taste better when you bring joy and mercy and love and peace and patience and all of the fruits of the Spirit, all of the blessings of a new kingdom to a world that is so far the opposite that it is bland. What do I mean by that? I just... I think sin is pretty bland. Not the first time, right? Uh, Often it's very exciting the first time. But after that sort of initial rush, you have to add a little more uh, to get that same feeling. And a little more the next time. Sin, in other words, wants a little more of you every time. It has to go for shock value because in and of itself it is empty. It's tasteless. And so we'll come back to salt in a moment. What about light? Well, light is even more important to the sustaining of the world. Remember, darkness comes first in Genesis 1. God made the light. Before that, there was darkness and there was disorder. When Dante followed Virgil into hell, he said it was a place dumb of every glimmer of light. Experiments have shown that to live in total darkness unhinges us. One uh, speleologist, I think that's someone who studies caves, uh, stayed for six months in a cave in Texas. And he got so lonely that he used his flash. I assume using his flashlight, he spread jam on the floor of the cave and tried to trap a mouse with a dish towel for companionship. And when he missed it and the mouse ran off, he wrote in his diary, desolation overwhelms me. 
Why? Because to be in total darkness is to be cut off, is to be isolated, is to be utterly alone. So without light, we lose our humanity, uh, we lose our relationships, we may even lose our minds. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. In other words, your good works, you Christians, crack open the darkness so that it flees. Remember John 1 when Jesus shows up, says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If you are in Christ, then you have that type of light in you. One of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy, uh, who John Piper called once the, the, uh, the book of judges of American literature. And in his book, The Road, some of you may, may have seen the movie, uh, a father and his son are living in a sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland, and they're trying to get south for the winter uh, so they don't freeze. Uh, but they have to avoid all of these, these gangs of marauders, uh, gangs of cannibals. And at one point, the boy says to his father, he says, we're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? His father says, yes, we are. And the boy says, nothing bad is going to happen to us. His father says, that's right, because we're carrying the fire. The little boy says, yes, because we're carrying the fire. Jesus says... Uh, Christians are carrying the fire. We're carrying the fire of the light and life and love and grace of God. And that we carry that in our homes. We carry that at work. We carry that in our relationships, in sunshine and in shadow, meaning in all circumstances. So by Jesus working in and through Christians, they have what John Stott says is a, a double influence, negatively arresting decay, but positively bringing light. Now, what does that look like in real life? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has actually just told us. He said to be salt and light is to be beatitudes people, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek and lowly, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful and pure in heart, to be peacemakers. And we don't have time to work out all of those. Uh, We can take two, I think, just as quick case studies here to flesh out what Jesus is calling us to when he says to be salt and light. Uh, First, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is a major paradox, right? Jesus is uh, saying that somehow sadness leads to joy. I think that's an interesting idea. I listened to a podcast recently uh, in which Ken Jennings, who is uh, a sort of minor celebrity for being the the greatest Jeopardy player in history, uh, Ken Jennings pushed back against the state of humor in our world today. And he pointed out that everything... Uh, up to and including celebrity debts and international policy uh, is really just sort of fodder for jokes now. And this is especially true on uh, social media. And so Ken Jennings, who is not a Christian as far as I know, said that he has noticed a decline in sincerity 
in earnestness. And that many people have lost their ability to react appropriately in situations where humor will not work. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. And so once again, Christians are called to something different. Uh, We're called to step into uh, difficult situations, difficult conversations, and to really refuse to sidestep the reality of sin and brokenness uh, in the world around us, but also in us, um, inside of us. So we mourn. We mourn for sin and brokenness that we see. Uh, We mourn for the sin and brokenness that we feel in ourselves. Paradoxically, I think this type of mourning, uh, sort of true mourning that Jesus talks about uh, for things that are properly to be mourned, I think that allows us to uh, keep humor in its place and to keep joy in its place. Humor, of course, being uh, a type of joy, so that Christians weep with those who weep, but we also rejoice with those who rejoice. But darkness before light, Jesus says, mourning before joy. Another way that Christians are called to be salt and light is to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is order, it's safety, it's, it's the opposite of darkness and disorder in many ways. To bring peace, in other words, is to uh, reflect the heart of God, who is a peacemaker himself. It's to live out the grace that brought us peace when we were still sinners. It was Jesus himself, after all, Paul tells us, who made peace by the blood of his cross. It was Jesus who came down and took on flesh so that we could be redeemed and we could be reconciled to him uh, by Jesus taking our punishment on himself. And that's really the rub here, I think. If we distilled uh, everything Jesus is saying here down into uh, something small and manageable, I think it would be that Christians can be salt and light in our world because Jesus has already been salt and light in our own hearts. In other words, um, his love has shot through the darkness of our sinful hearts. His blood preserves us when uh, sin is working to disorder our lives and our, our work in our relationships. And Jesus is saying uh, essentially that this work of grace in you, do not hide that. Let it out. Let the world see it. Let the world taste it. But then he says this, if salt is not salty, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he says, do not let the light be hidden under a uh, bushel or a meal tub or a bucket or whatever. John Stott puts it this way. You are light, so you must let your light shine and not conceal it, whether by sin or by compromise, by laziness or by fear. He says, don't blame the world. We can't blame unsalted meat for going bad. The question is, where is the salt? Christian salt has no business to remain snugly 
in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars, our place is to be rubbed into the secular community. Amen, right? Assault is for rubbing. Light is for shining. In my life, in your life, in the life of this church here in Little Rock, there's really only one thing left to add, and that is the why. It's so that, Jesus says, they, meaning the world, can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's really the end of all this, right? Uh, God's glory, the highest good. And that is important to remember because it is not easy to be salt and light. Uh, One thing that those uh, two substances have in common is that uh, they give of themselves. They act on other things. In fact, uh, if I can, one last illustration here. The next time you're going to, uh, eat a tasty steak, maybe a, a T-bone. You've got the, the charcoal lit, uh, and you've got the steak sitting there. Take some chunky kosher salt and put it all over the steak, and then leave it for a time. And when you come back, the salt, of course, will be gone. It will have uh, melted or absorbed into the meat, and you won't be able to see it. But when you eat the steak, the salt will be very obvious to you, and it will make the steak uh, far better. And that's a little bit like being a Christian, to be meek, to be poor in spirit, to bring grace and mercy and love and peace means giving yourself away. It means disappearing in some sense so that God's kingdom can go forward. The beauty of it is that our king is so strong and our future is so secure that we can say even now to our heavenly father, we can say, we're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? And nothing bad is going to happen to us because we're carrying the fire of the light and life and love of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we pray that, um, that you would change us through it, uh, that we would uh, act uh, on these things that you have taught us, uh, that we would grow to become more and more like Jesus Christ, and that you would be glorified in the process. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.